If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Heineken Silver. When you discover something you love, like a new podcast or beer, you have to tell everyone about it. So when you try new Heineken Silver, a world-class light beer with only 2.9 carbs and 95 calories, you'll want to tell the world how great it is. New Heineken Silver, the world-class light beer with all the taste, no bitter endings. Available at your local Heineken retailer or for delivery at heineken.com slash silver. Must be 21 plus to purchase. Enjoy Heineken responsibly. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's guest is the best-selling author and historian Dan Jones. Dan is best known for writing historical non-fiction about the Middle Ages, but he's recently turned his hand to writing a ghost story, using a medieval spooky tale as his template. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, caught up with Dan to find out more. Dan, you've you've been uh, prolific this year with your writing. Not only have you written a a huge, wide-ranging history of medieval Europe uh, with your Powers and Thrones book, which we've talked about on this podcast already, um, but you've also uh, reimagined a famous medieval ghost story in in another book you've written, uh, The Tale of the Tailor and the Three Dead Kings. So this story you've retold, when and where was it first told? So around the year 1400, a Cistercian monk in Byland Abbey, collected a group of 12 stories of the supernatural that had been going on around the Abbey, but that seemed to have been told by ordinary people of that part of the world. Uh, And they're written down on a single um, piece of vellum, parchment, uh, in the back of a collection of manuscripts which are not about ghost stories at all, which are things like... um, orations of Cicero and Christian theological tracts. So it's sort of like scribbled on the... These stories are kind of scribbled in this incredibly crabby hand. 
uh, as it were, on the back of a napkin, um, and then remained in the library, first of the Abbey and then in the British Library, sort of untouched and largely ignored for more or less uh, 600 years. And we'll we'll come to how they were rediscovered in, in a bit. But do we know anything about this the, the person who who wrote these stories? Do we, do we have a name for this monk, or is this this just don't know anything about them? This is just anonymous monk um, in Byland Abbey. Now, what we do know is a little bit about Byland Abbey, which is a, a Cistercian monastery in a great part of the world for Cistercian monasteries that it had at one time been extremely grand. That by the year fourteen hundred, it was falling into some state of disrepair with not many brothers and not many people serving them. Uh, there was a rattling around in the place, but no, we don't know anything really about the person who actually wrote this stuff down. And do we have any sense about? why they were written down or who they were written for? They seem to be written down for a few reasons. One is that it's just weird. It's just good, weird stuff that's been happening locally. The, the stories, and most of them are very short. Uh, the Tale of the Tailor, as I've called it, is, is, is by some distance the longest, and it's not very long in its original form. Uh, in some cases, there are a couple of sentences. Uh, so... Clearly, the person who wrote these stories down had an interest in the wacky, the weird, and the supernatural. The fact that they've been collected with texts like Cicero, texts by various Christian theologians, would suggest that they're there for a form of... uh, There's a sort of didactic purpose. They seem to be some sort of teaching aid so that alongside the sort of... Um, the uh, the, fer- the very formal things that are going to teach rhetoric, things that are going to teach theology. Here we have some sort of folk tales, which if you can imagine teaching uh, a group of bored um, young monks or, or men on their way to becoming uh, fully professed monks, and they're rolling their eyes and finding it incredibly tiresome to sit through uh, hour after hour of Latin uh, rhetoric. You might just want to have in your back pocket something weird to pull out and entertain them. I mean, if you've if you've ever been or had a good teacher, that, that that's a sort of go to um, trick. And I think that there's part of the purpose is to uh, is is that these are there to be drawn on as entertainment for recalcitrant students. Um, but I think I think more probably there was just a sense that weird stuff was abounding, and um, whoever wrote them down just thought it would be fun to to keep a, uh, a track of it. So you mentioned that uh, the stories were kind of perhaps somewhat forgotten for, for centuries. How do we know about them now? Tell us about M.R. James, uh, who he was and his involvement in this. Well, almost exactly 100 years ago, uh, M.R. James, best known for his ghost stories, uh, best known today for his ghost stories, which have been adapted over the last 50 years numerous times uh, for television, most recently um, by Mark Gatiss, who does one most Christmases. M.R. James was, in fact, in his day, and we're going back to the 1920s uh, in this case, um, M.R. James was an extremely accomplished medievalist. Um, He edited, I mean, I still use uh, M.R. James's volume of Walter Mapp, you know, the waspish Welsh chronicler from the court of Henry II. He was originally uh, transcribed and edited that text. He'd been uh, in charge of the Fitzwilliam Museum in Cambridge. He'd been provost of Eton college uh he was a a scholar at king's he was an extremely accomplished medievalist but he also had this interest in the supernatural now 
In the year 1921, I think, uh, M.R. James was working in the then British Museum with the collection that's now uh, the core of the British Library, and a new catalogue came out of the manuscripts in the Royal Collection. And the catalogue mentioned in passing that this this uh, group of Bile and Abbey manuscripts had some weird ghost stories in the back. So M.R. James had, had, had known that this was there, had heard about it uh, from other scholars before, but was now prompted to go and take a look at these ghost stories. And he transcribed them in their medieval Latin, which he described somewhat dryly as very refreshing. (laughs) It's extremely difficult and and tortuous, in fact. He transcribed them and they were published in the pages of the English Historical Review. Now, a couple of years later, in a local historical journal, they were then translated into English by a scholar called Grant. And they've been occasionally looked at by other scholars ever since, over the hundred years that have elapsed since the 1920s and now. Um, But they're not very well known at all. And um, so I thought I'd better have a have a read of uh, the the original mr james article i had a, had a quick gander and as you say he, he describes the latin as very refreshing i i had a look at the uh, transcription i thought i'm my medieval latin is not up to translating this anyway so but i did enjoy his little he's you, you can see the sense of mr james uh, in his footnotes he talks about uh, uh, the ghosts do not twitter and squeak like those of homer and there's another one another point where he says this is most curious why did the woman catch the ghost and bring it indoors which is um so there's there's some strange stuff going on in these stories when when you read them when you look at them are they what are these stories like are they are they well told you said some of them very short i mean are these sorts of things that stephen king would be proud of or or are we in a different category completely we're in a different category completely i mean they're fragmentary they're partial they're of like extremely just weird stuff happening that doesn't have a coherent beginning, middle and end. Uh, there's no um, Hollywood story arc to most of these most of these tales. But I think that that may be why they appeal to M.R. James. Now, if you've ever read any of M.R. James's um, original ghost stories that he himself wrote, they do have this, this fragmentary, broken, shard-like character. If you think about well, what's one of M.R. James's most famous ghost stories, um, A Whistle and I'll Come to You. You know, the story about the guy who goes up playing golf and finds a Templar uh, and goes rooting around in a Templar preceptory, finds a whistle, blows it. And then this odd thing, weird face in a window and he feels like he's being kind of uh, there's someone in his room at night and he's all tangled up in his bed sheets. It's not really a proper, neat Stephen King style story, um, but it does more accurately reflect the if you've ever had any um any experience with feeling something unnatural or haunting or or uh, or supernatural it does more accurately reflect the the fleeting and um an inexplicable nature of of that experience mr james's stories reflect that and i think that the the tiny little shards of ghostly happenings in yorkshire in uh, around the turn of the um 14th and 15th century it, it's got that same essence to it so do we know i mean uh, mr james uh Obviously, he had a great interest in these uh, in these sorts of stories, and from from his own writings, he was clearly in, into this topic. Um, and when you read that article uh, that he wrote, the original one, he sort of talks about them reminding him of of Danish folklore. I think um, now you get kind of revenants and the like in in Viking sagas, but I don't think that's what he's talking about. Is it? I don't. Know, do, do we know where this 
what sort of context and tradition these medieval ghost stories sit in? I think that I mean in some of the some of the he said he's it's a Danish sagas, but I think it, it's slightly close to Icelandic sagas. I mean, there's a heavy there's a very famous Scandinavian ghost story in the course of a, a bigger chronicle, and the 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 undead ghost is called Glam. I don't know if you know the story of Glam, and who's a, a real beast, a real monster. He dies and he then comes back to life, and he's, he's capable of destroying houses and killing anyone who comes looking for him. And he sort of wanders into a much longer story and then just sort of disappears again. And so I suppose that some of that may be what M.R. James had in mind when he wrote that, that these these tales, they don't really add up that well. And they, they do seem very rooted in the earth. These are not, these are not stories of they're not like the Arthurian romances. They don't have this uh, this questing or um, or high chivalrous uh, character to them. They're not in any way close to, for example, if if we think about the, the supernatural beings who wander across Cretin de Troyes' stories. You know, if you think about Lancelot, the knight in the cart, being driven by a, a, a sort of a dwarf and by which I mean like an imp, an ogre, clearly a supernatural character within the story, but that, but it's part of a much grander kind of quest, which these stories have nothing in common with that uh, that medieval literary tradition. I guess when you talk about Arthurian tradition, then, you know, the, the Green Knight story, the Green is, Knight, which is being, yeah. you know, turned into a Hollywood film as we speak. It's a, it's a very strange story that's hard to hard to get your head, get your head around. <laughs> it, well, yeah, it's weird. It's definitely weird. And I'm very eager to see the, uh, the the Green Knight cinematic adaptation. But again, it's that's something much more elevated, more courtly that has that engages with rules of uh, of chivalry, that engages with the ideas of questing. None of the stories from the Byland Abbey manuscript are anything like that. They're rooted in the soil, in the earth. They're like ordinary people going through just weird stuff when they're going about their ordinary business, walking from one place to another, and something comes out of the hedge and scares the hell out of them. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Now, all the time we lived in that house, that house that house made some weird noises. That house creaked and that house definitely felt weird when you went in the two oldest rooms. Possibly because I'd been told the story that it was haunted. Possibly, depending on how you approach these things, because it was haunted. There are two things that are absolutely true. Grandma loves you, and she would never say no to McDonald's. So treat yourself to a Grandma McFlurry with your order today. It's what Grandma would want. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's for a limited time. So the, the, the one that you've um, chosen to retell, so you've called it the tale of the tailor and the three-day king. It doesn't have a title, does it? There's no, no. You know, there's no titular bit on the, on the manuscript, no. so, so that's from you. Um, was that the kind of the the fullest story was that the one where you had the most material to go on yeah well, i'll tell you i'll tell you what happened was i went looking for a medieval ghost story first and foremost because it was halloween 2020 and it was were we locked down at that point not quite or maybe just about to be or so it was it was bad times anyway it was yeah. boring times and uh, trick or treating was off the menu and i thought i've got uh, I had I got two girls, and I thought I'll 
I'll tell them a ghost story. And I went looking for a medieval one to try and triangulate between, uh, try and slip a bit of knowledge in uh, as I did so. And that, that's how I came across this uh, M.R. James's original article about these stories. And I thought, right, and I went and I looked through them and I thought, well, the only one that's got enough substance for me to tell them that's not just like uh, a ghost came and threw me over the hedge and that was that, was the second of these 12 Byland Abbey ghost stories. And it's uh, it's by some distance the more the most fleshed out of the of the tales, uh, which made it attractive. It has a central protagonist whose name is Snowball, who is a tailor. Probably his surname is Snowball. It involves him encountering several different ghosts, going off and having to do something, coming back once he's done it, and encountering the ghosts again. And so that gives it a sort of a, a narrative shape that most of the other stories lack. And it's just quite weird. It's really, in fact, it's really weird. Um, and so it struck me as the, the best one that I could tell the kids. And uh, an M.R. James style, I sat down and in, in a session, rewrote it, retold it. And I say M.R. James style because he used to write his own stories uh, quickly, longhand. I didn't do it longhand, but he used to write them quickly and, and in one or two sessions. And then I just then I had a story and I went to tell it to my kids and they they couldn't have cared less. They were like, "We're going to watch something on YouTube. <laughs> we don't want that nonsense." So I sent it to my publisher instead. <laughs> so, so okay. So you've you've preempted my so you've channeled your inner Mr. James. You've written the story in, in one go and then you've you, you've sat down for a nice fireside chat with your with your with your kids, uh, and and they didn't go for it. They didn't think. This uh, the, the, this medieval ghost story is uh, is going to hold their attention. I don't know if you ever if you've ever read the stories of Molesworth. No. I, I read the Molesworth stories when I was growing up. Molesworth is a, a character um, by Willens and Searle. There were a series of short Molesworth novels, and Molesworth was a, a sort of send up of um, English public school day stories and the central character was uh, Nigel Molesworth. Anyway, I tell you that only because there's a there's a, a bit of Molesworth where uh, he, his father sits him and his brother known as Molesworth too down at Christmas and attempts to read them the Christmas uh, Dickens's A Christmas Carol <laughs> and it's the boy's worst bit of Christmas. They will do absolutely anything to avoid a dramatic telling of A Christmas Carol by their father who wants nothing more than to spend Christmas Eve reading a, a scary ghost story to them. A similar effect uh, was at play with my children. I mean, actually, I gave the manuscript of the story to my eldest daughter, who's now nearly 13, and she she read it in her room where her reaction could not be observed or gauged. Uh, and I said, after a day or so, what do you think? She went, yes, yeah, fine. That That's the sum total. I, I, I deeply hope for a, a more enthusiastic response on the part of the readers of, of The Tale of the Tailor and Three Dead Kings. Um, but on the other hand, there's now a very low baseline. <laughs> like anything above sullen fine is great for me. So, so we know what people need to write on their online reviews for this book. Yeah, it's yes. fine. Would fine. would, yeah, would cover fine. it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so uh, not going too much into into the tale of the story because obviously we want people to go and have a read of it. But it, uh, it's it's a very curious tale about this chap Snowball who who encounters some ghosts, does some things, wanders along some lonely roads, has some fairly scary sounding experiences. You've had to elaborate, I, I guess, to 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 make it into uh, a story a bit, but. Um, what 
there are some themes in it that sort of touch on on wider understanding of, of sort of medieval um, attitudes in terms of purgatory, mass, and unburied bodies, because that's kind of some of the things. What what give, give us a sense about what it tells us about medieval attitudes to death? I guess uh, a little bit. Well, at the heart, it's a story about moving into the afterlife. It's a story that starts. So Snowball the tailor is riding his horse along the road. And he's picked on by some ghosts and he's picked on because he hasn't heard mass that day. So he's picked on because he's already slipped from the the Christian ideal. And the the ghosts or ghosts, which take various forms, uh, send, eventually tell him that that they are, it is the spirit of somebody who was known in the local area to be a terrible person and was... was um, was considered damned when they died. And the, the soul is complaining that they are effectively in limbo, in purgatory, and, and, can't, and can't move on into another realm of the afterlife unless Snowball helps them out, which he then, that's his great, he then goes off and does it um, and comes back having done it. And the consequences of him having done it are, are, are ambiguous, let's say. So it's a story about redemption. It's a story about the afterlife. It's a st- and as you pointed out, it's a story about medieval attitudes to death, which are that there were certain things that you had to do every day. There were certain important things that you had to do in your life or not do in your life if you wanted to to pass into another world. It also shows us about the the deep elision between, quote unquote, or, or rather with a small o, orthodox medieval Christian belief and pagan ideas of the afterlife and how these two things are really sort of woven together. It's not as simple as here's a tortured soul that uh, is known to be in purgatory. You know, in the Middle Ages, it was people could could work out where a soul was or, or had a system for saying, I think we know where this particular soul is. I think it was Richard the Lionheart Someone had worked out that because he'd paid for an awful lot of masses for his soul, his his path through purgatory was going to be quite fast. And so on a certain date, about, I, I, I'll get the number wrong, but I think it's sort of 56 years after Richard the Lionheart died, there was a big celebration that it was like, Richard's got to heaven! He's made it through purgatory. It's got to be. It's like it's to the day. We worked this out. Okay, so there was, <laughs> there was a, so that's a sort of fairly orthodox understanding of a soul's passage through purgatory. In these stories... Or, and in this story, Tale of Taylor and Three Dead Kings in particular, you've got something that's much more kind of a, a, a messy combination of the soul can't move on because there are some things that he, it has to sign off in its, uh, its sort of Christian duties. But on the other hand, it's taking the form of, of weird animal-type ghosts that are really nothing to do with uh, scripture or, or recognised Christian tradition. So... It's this really like messy kind of interesting mixture of folk belief and sort of higher uh, Christian theology, I suppose. And as you're saying, we, we think this is probably written sometime in the what, early 15th century, t- t- turn of the 15th century, 1400s. So that's you know, quite a long time after Christianity had been uh, had had been uh, embraced in Britain in England. Um, it, it's interesting that these folklore traditions still permeate, but I guess they still do today, don't they? Even though we're um, yeah, although, although I think that the story of Christianity spread in England, Britain, but full stop in the West is the story of it 
it's finding compromise between local tradition and its own internal theology. If you think back to where are Christian uh, early Christian churches in England are often found near what had been pagan shrines in the countryside, right? And, and meetings of river and water sources in pre-Christian times. There's Christianity throughout the Middle Ages is traditionally quite or has periods where it's 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 good at compromise. It's really really good at compromise with folk beliefs. I mean, the obvious one that everyone trots out is why is Christmas at Christmas because it coin you know coincides. Why is Easter at Easter because these important ritual dates in the Christian calendar are over time massaged towards uh, times of older social celebration or communal coming together. So I think it's it's that's not that odd in the medieval context. Um, and I think it's not odd in the modern context either. I mean, if you, why are we giving out chocolate eggs with pictures of rabbits on them at Easter? You know, we still do exactly this thing. It's, you know, it's not Jesus on the, on the front of your Cadbury's cream egg, is it? It's like a chick. That's, that's compromise <laughs> between these two festivals. And, you know, did, did Jesus really want you to get a PlayStation 5 to celebrate his birth? I don't know. I don't think so. I'm not sure. I can't, I, I'm not qualified to say. So yes. this, <laughs> <laughs> um, th- this might be sort of unknowable, um, but do we do we know what the medieval attitude to ghosts was? Were, were people sort of in you know in fear of stepping out of their houses at night for fear of bumping into a ghost? Do we have much much sense of, of what they might have thought about this sort of thing? Well, I, I suppose I should say that. Um, I'm just a dude who wrote a story in this context, right? And I know a little bit about the Middle Ages, but I'm not I'm not a, a I'm not deeply expert on medieval ghosts, but from my amateurish understanding uh, and the the number of times that I've sort of bumped into ghosts as it were in medieval chronicles, they just seem to be much as they are today accepted as something that kind of can you can get lucky slash unlucky and come across a ghost. When I came across the story of the, which I called the tale of the tailor, I was actually, I had in mind, I was like, I know a ghost story from the Middle Ages. What is it? And I couldn't think and I couldn't think. And I went Googling. Uh, well, and, and then I went through um, Catalyst, the library catalogue. And I, eventually I found this, but this wasn't what I was looking for. I was, and I remembered later, I was looking for William of Newborough's Chronicle, which mentions a revenant. Is that the right way to say it? Or Revenant? Revenant, it is Revenant. Like the Leo DiCaprio. Yeah, you know, The Walking Dead. Um, It's often cited as a sort of uh, a vampire-style story that the dead had been rising from their graves and tormenting people. So my my sense whenever I've come across ghosts uh, in the Chronicles as opposed to legends is that, um, much like now, you know, they sometimes... you'll you'll just get a ghost. And it's like, it's pretty weird. I, I grew up in a house. Uh, that's not the end of the story. I grew up in a house um, for about 10 years. When we moved into this house, the original part of the house had been 16th century, 16th century little tiny farm cottage. And the old bit of the house had a uh, a chimney with a priest hole in it, right? And so... The old house had been two rooms, one downstairs with a big fireplace and the chimney and the priest hole, one room upstairs, thatch roof. Over the time, it had been extended, but that was the old bit of the house. When my parents bought this house, they were told by the people they bought it off, 
oh, well, when we took it over five years ago or whatever, we had to unblock all of the 16th century bit of the house. The doors had been like banged, boarded up. And the previous owners to us but one had refused to go into that bit of the house because they were absolutely convinced it was haunted, potentially by the ghost of uh, a priest. Now, all the time we lived in that house, that house, that house made some weird noises. That house creaked and that house definitely felt weird when you went in the two oldest rooms. Possibly because I'd been told the story that it was haunted. Possibly, depending on how you approach these things, because it was haunted. Uh, there's no way of telling that you can't run a control experiment to see. Uh, however, that's a, struck me that that's a good example of you just kind of... Sometimes you come across a place that's haunted. It just is. And I think in the Middle Ages, kind of similar. Right. So so finally, tell me this. So you've you've reimagined this story, you've rewritten it, um, you've you've mined what the uh, what the monk wrote and then you've uh, you've put your own twist on it. Did you in so doing, did you get any sort of further insight into uh into the guy who wrote it this uh, and i assume it's a guy this anonymous uh, that's a tricky word anonymous monk from the 15th century he seems like a bit of a gloomy sort to me maybe he wasn't did you did you kind of through writing this get a any closer insight into into the monk that actually put pen the original tale it's quite hard um the the sense i got from from reading the quite short fragmentary bit of of this story as it existed in the Byland Abbey Chronicle in the context of the other 11 stories that he'd written down was that um, he's not not necessarily wide-eyed and credulous, but certainly bought into the existence of the afterlife, was, was, uh, was a pragmatic believer in ghosts, let's say, did have a sort of gothic uh, small g, I think, uh, interest in weird stuff with which uh, I can sympathise. Wanted to illustrate through the stories uh, the perils of impiety. Wasn't a very good storyteller, fundamentally. Was quite uh, quite nervous about upsetting local people. The ghost who is tormented and who Snowball the Tailor has. So Snowball the Tailor is a named character, but the ghost who has to, who has to be sort of um, released from purgatory by Snowball the Tailor is never named. It, in fact, the name is deliberately sort of redacted in the original story. And I've kept that the same way in my telling of the story um, because I, I suppose the reason might be that this is a sort of an eminent local personage or that it's somebody whose name will be, uh, to use the 21st century argot, triggering to those who hear the story. Um, but but so the monk is kind of very aware of not upsetting people, even when scribbling down stories for not for public or wide public consumption. So he's obviously uh, either a coward or quite sensitive to local interests, depending how you look at it. Beyond that, it's somewhat hard to say. And in the process of writing what is, I suppose, essentially fiction, which is different from writing nonfiction, I discovered, you, of course, then put the stamp of your own preoccupations on the story. So this story has a lot of my fictional style to it 
that it, that tries to tease out the gloominess that you've recognised in the original, but overlays it with another sort of with a gothic vision that I'm developing in other fiction that I'm writing at the moment. And uh, do you have high hopes for the movie rights on this one? Enormously high, yeah. Yeah, just uh, as soon as I call Mark Gatiss. There's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, on your screens uh, about never. I don't know. Who knows? It's it's a quite a good story. It's got an M.R. James co- connection. And if I was making a... If I was commissioning a film at the BBC to be shown at Christmas that had a little medieval twist and an amusing horse. We haven't even talked about the amusing horse. I'd I'd plump for the tale of the tailor in Three Dead Kings. Uh, I, I've uh, deliberately not talked about the amusing horse because I thought maybe uh, maybe our listeners might want to uh, to pick up the story themselves. But uh, uh, there is there is a strange horse in it. I would I would agree. Uh, which refers back to our previous podcast conversation about the Great Stirrup controversy. Um, which, uh, if any listeners want to refer back to our conversation on powers and thrones, then uh, then we talk about that there. Um, so look, so uh, if you want a, a medieval ghost story, uh, the Tale of the Tailor and the Three Dead Kings uh, by Dan James is out now. Dan, thank you very much for your time once more. Thank you. That was Dan Jones. His ghost story, The Tale of the Tailor and the Three Dead Kings, is out now, published by Head of Zeus. Dan's most recent non-fiction book, Powers and Thrones, is also available now. And the podcast that was mentioned where Dan and Dave spoke about Powers and Thrones is available in our archive at historyextra.com forward slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us again tomorrow when Professor Joyce Tildesley will be answering your questions about Egyptian pharaohs. 